0: Before we begin, a quick note. This episode is divided into two chapters. In the first chapter, we describe some archaeological discoveries from the reign of King Sneferu. In the second chapter, we tell a story of King Sneferu himself. This story is a fairy tale, a fantasy, but it includes elements of sexuality. It may not be suitable for all audiences, so please, Use discretion when listening to this episode. Thank you. Hello folks, welcome to a side episode. 5B Sneferu's Beauties Today, I cover some additional material from the reign of king Sneferu, first ruler of Dynasty 4, builder of three pyramids, and all-round legend among the kings of Egypt. This ruler is famous for many reasons, but archaeologists and historians are learning more about him and his reign every day. In this episode, I want to explore some other details, including wonderful features that recently came to light. In episode 5, I described the construction of three major pyramids. At Meidum, Dashur South, and Dashur North, royal architects and workers laboured on immense building projects. The whole process took 45 years, maybe more. And by the end, Sneferu's agents had moved more stone, done more building work than anyone before. As far as royal propaganda is concerned, it was something beyond imagining, a marvel or wonder of the king's power. There are a couple of things I did not mention, so I'd like to take a few minutes to expand the tale of Sneferu. You see, the monuments of this king have recently received more attention. In particular, the Pyramid of Meidum, the first monument that Sneferu commissioned, has undergone a bit of a renaissance. In recent years, a pair of researchers studied the monument, and they raised interesting questions about the structure. Long story short, there may be some undiscovered parts to this pyramid. Let me explain. The Meidum pyramid is complicated in an architectural sense. Today, we see a half-collapsed structure surrounded by debris with a somewhat dilapidated shape. That is partly the result of damage, especially stone robbery over the centuries. But it's also a result of engineering. Sneferu's architects changed the pyramid at Meidum twice during construction. Today, we see a pyramid that has three distinct phases in its architecture. I explained all of that in episode 5, but its important context. The Meidum Pyramid is weird. And it also holds secrets. Inside the pyramid, the entry corridors descend beneath the earth. Then, the passage levels out at the bottom, before climbing straight up in a vertical shaft. By the time you reach the end of the passages, you have reached the centre of the monument. And standing in the burial chamber, quote-unquote, you are at the base of the pyramid. It's a bit unnerving, feeling all of that stone pressing down above. And the Maidum Pyramid itself does not fill one with confidence. There are wooden beams in the ceiling, apparently helping to support the roof. And some of the walls are rough, irregular blocks of stone piled up together. For a long time, the Maidum Pyramid seemed like a haphazard, imperfect monument. That's not a criticism of the builders. Since they had to design, then redesign, then redesign again, we can expect the structure wound up slightly rough. But that is not the point. The point is, the imperfect masonry may have other explanations. In the early 2010s, a pair of researchers named Dormion and Verthut re-examined the Maidum Pyramid, Specifically, the internal structure. Their conclusions were interesting. First, the pair identified relieving chambers above the corridors and passages. Relieving chambers are hollow spaces designed to lighten, or relieve, the weight of the masonry. In this case, the ancient architects had included hollow, relieving chambers above the horizontal corridor at the bottom of the pyramid, those chambers protected the structure, preventing any collapses into the passageway. It was an ingenious addition to the monument, one that would turn up in later pyramids. But until Dormion and Verdhut studied Meidum, those relieving chambers were unknown. So this study was a victory. The pair went further than that. They also studied the chambers in the core of the monument. This time, their conclusions were more speculative, but still interesting. Dormion and Werdhut studied the final room, the burial chamber, quote-unquote, and they noted how the construction here is rough and irregular. Certain features, like the wooden beams and stone lintels, appear in the walls, but serve no visible purpose. I am simplifying their argument terribly, but you get the point. The researchers wondered if, maybe, there are architectural elements beyond what we know. Dormion and Verthut suggested, tentatively, that another passageway, or chamber, might exist in the pyramid. This extra area, if it exists, would be small, otherwise it wouldn't fit into the masonry. But even if it is small, it is intriguing there might be a corridor that was never completed, or another chamber abandoned during construction. The point is, the Meidum pyramid could possibly, maybe, potentially, have undiscovered rooms. You may be familiar with other projects that have suggested undiscovered or hidden chambers in different pyramids. The Meidum one tends to get overlooked, it's not a famous monument. But... The study of this structure was interesting. Hopefully, researchers can examine and test Dormion and Verdhut's hypothesis. If any pyramid was going to have undiscovered chambers, the Meidum one would be a good candidate. These researchers also turned their attention to the Bent pyramid. In another study, Dormion and Verdhut proposed that this pyramid, at Dashur, might have its own undiscovered chambers. Unfortunately, this hypothesis proved incorrect. In 2015, a team of scientists scanned the Bent Pyramid. As part of the larger Scan Pyramids project, researchers from the University of Nagoya spent weeks studying the masonry of that structure. In the end, they found no evidence for additional chambers or corridors. So Dormion and Verthoot had success at Meidum, but the Bent Pyramid seems to be what it appears to be. A fascinating monument with an interesting history, but probably no hidden chambers. That could change in the future. For now, it is what it is. These projects are small, and they may seem inconsequential, but there is a point here. The Pyramid at Meidum and the Bent Pyramid at Dashur have many stories yet to tell. Archaeologists have examined these monuments repeatedly over the years. But as technology develops, new methods arise, and new questions emerge, there is always more to learn. Whether it's identifying architectural features, answering questions about engineering and design, or simply helping to reconstruct the ancient picture. archaeologists keep at it. As more information comes forth, I will report it. For now, let's move on. Now, we've talked about Meidum and the Bent Pyramid at Dashur. For the rest of this episode, we will stay at the site of Dashur. You see, archaeologists are expanding their work near the Bent Pyramid. And in recent years, wonderful discoveries have emerged – Scientists have added greatly to our knowledge of the ancient landscape, and the work that Sneferu's agents did in this area. One excellent feature is the discovery of Sneferu's garden. In the early 2000s, researchers from the German Archaeological Institute spent a few years digging at Sneferu's Valley Temple. This is a stone building between the bent pyramid and the green floodplain beside the Nile. Valley temples are a noteworthy part of royal pyramid complexes. Snefru's valley temple at Dashur is the earliest one to date. Archaeologists surveyed the temple and excavated its foundations. And as they did, something remarkable emerged. Another building, slightly older lay beneath the stones. This earlier monument was built from mud bricks, and it had a vaguely temple design, but it also had a curious feature. A large garden surrounded the monument. As they dug, the team found evidence for an orchard around Snefru's temple. Ancient pits in the earth held the traces of roots from large trees, These trees were varied, including sycamore and cypress. Cypress trees are foreign, not native to Egypt. So Sneferu may have imported exotic plants from northern lands to fill his pyramid garden. The project here was huge. Archaeologists have identified at least 300 pits for planting different trees. Clearly, the ancients were making something big. A huge pleasure garden in the sands of Dashur. Why did they do this? The purpose of the garden is slightly unclear. We know it was important because the builders made it secure. The garden, or orchard, had a wall surrounding the area. This wall was huge, five meters thick, a real barrier to prying eyes. So the garden was secluded, off-limits to most people, and the wall hid it from the outside world. That kind of exclusivity might hint at the purpose. This secret garden could be a place for ceremonies or celebrations of the king and his power. Sneferu's garden in the desert sands was kind of miraculous, an artificial oasis in the shadow of the pyramid. With that in mind, this garden complex could be a place to glorify Snefru himself. Imagine the priests and courtiers in their finest clothes, standing amid trees and flowers, while the king appeared in splendour. Perhaps Snefru could use this artificial oasis to demonstrate his wealth and his power over nature and the world, the power to make life in the midst of the desert. That is educated speculation from one of the lead excavators. But you get the idea. The garden is anomalous in this environment. Maybe that was the point. Planting trees, a whole orchard, in the desert? That was one heck of a flex. So, as work proceeded on the Bent Pyramid, Senefro's architects tried something new. They created a garden complex in the deserts of Dashur. It was a secret space, enclosed by a massive wall. Here, hidden from prying eyes, gardeners would try to bring forth life from the sand. Potentially, they would use this space to celebrate the king's divine rule. Unfortunately, Sneferu's hopes for a lush orchard came to nothing. The sandy soil proved too harsh for the sycamore and cypress trees. Archaeologists working on the garden noticed that the roots of these trees usually failed to develop. Apparently, the arid soil was a barrier, and eventually, the garden failed. When that happened, the king's architects revised their plans. Sneferu's agents abandoned the garden project, and they replaced it with something new. Something far more permanent. In chapter 2 we continue exploring Dashur and the landscape around the Bent Pyramid. Along the way, we learn about the facilities that Sneferu's architects designed. Specifically, a new kind of temple for the pyramid complex. Also, a massive harbour connecting the cemetery to the Nile. And finally, we tell a story, a legend, about King Sneferu himself. That is after the break. See you in a moment! Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. In year 30 of Snefro's reign, work at the Bent Pyramid was in trouble. Around this time, Sneferu's architects started working on their next monument, the Red Pyramid, also located at Dashur. The new structure was basically the neighbour of the Bent Pyramid, but, you know, done better. I described all of that in episode 5, and why the Bent Pyramid is actually my personal favourite of the Old Kingdom monuments. But aside from the massive project of building a whole new pyramid, Sneferu's architects also changed other areas. At this point, the architects reimagined their garden complex. They abandoned the garden and started building a temple. A stone structure with different sections replaced the old orchard. This temple has mostly disappeared, just the foundations remain but enough survives to get a hint of the monument and its purpose. The new temple would serve as a place for celebrating Sneferu's rule. Blocks of stone recovered from the monument show images of the king. Wall carvings presented Sneferu in the midst of his said festival, the grand jubilee of a monarch's reign. After 30 years in power... Sneferu participated in the said festival rites. Images of that survive from this temple. The new structure was the first example of a building that will appear at many pyramids. We call it the valley temple because it connected the main pyramid with the green river valley below. Valley temples were important parts of pyramid complexes. Sneferu's valley temple at Dashur is the first surviving example. This valley temple sat halfway between the pyramid and the Nile. But even though it connected the pyramid with the river valley, the temple was still in the desert, sort of. That was a little bit of a problem, because the temple was supposed to connect the monument with the world of the living. The ancients solved this barrier in a remarkable way. Just in front of the valley temple, Egyptian workers built a harbour. Artificial harbours show up in many ancient monuments. There is one at Giza, for the Great Pyramids. There were major canals and harbours at certain cities. And in later centuries, massive temples like Karnak would have elaborate harbours and docks. The ancient Egyptians were quite happy to modify the landscape, to make transport and building projects easier. Today, archaeologists are devoting a lot of time and effort to uncovering that ancient infrastructure. As part of this trend, scientists have found the harbour at Dashur. Excavations in the region have found the area of the harbour. It seems that Sneferu's overseers organised a large artificial lake. They might have used a pool or lake that already existed and then expanded it. Either way, they employed huge teams of workers to dig a massive harbour. Along the way, they probably dug a canal connecting that harbour with the Nile. This idea was simple but effective. With a good waterfront, ships could deliver stone, provisions, and people to the Dashur area. As a result, the desert cemetery could become a thriving city and construction zone. To date, This harbour at Dashur is the oldest pyramid harbour identified. There are older ports in different parts of the country, but for the pyramids, this is the oldest one discovered. And the excavation of this port, along with the valley temple, helps us understand the development of royal pyramid complexes. Speaking of harbours and the Nile, we also have a story about King Sneferu. It concerns a pleasure cruise that he took on the river, and a small mishap that befell his servants. This tale is fun, and it's also famous among Egyptologists, because many students use it as a training text when they are studying the ancient language. When learning to read hieroglyphs, the tale of King Sneferu and his boat crews, is a very common exercise. As a result, some Egyptologists are kind of sick of it. But it is a fun story. The tale comes from a papyrus, the West Car Papyrus, if you're interested. This papyrus is long, and it records numerous tales of the Old Kingdom. There are stories about Sneferu, but also King Net Netjeriket of the Third Dynasty. There is a tale about King Khufu, Sneferu's son, who built the Great Pyramid. And many others. The papyrus is long, with many different sections. For now, the important part is that King Sneferu has his own tale. Let's tell it. The story begins in the court of King Khufu. That ruler is listening to tales told by his sons, the princes of Egypt. One of these sons, named bao stands up to tell a tale of Khufu's father, the great King Sneferu. This is where our story begins. Quote, Prince Bao rose up to speak, and he said, I shall let your majesty, King Khufu, hear a marvellous thing that happened in the time of your father, Sneferu, the true of voice. This marvel was performed by the chief lector priest, Jaja M. Ankh, one day, the king of southern and northern Egypt, Sneferu, the true of voice, was going around every room in the palace. He was seeking a cool, refreshing place, but he could not find any. The king said, Go and bring me the chief lector priest, Jaja M'Ank. And Jaja M'Ank was brought to the king immediately. His majesty described his problem, how he could find no place of rest. Jaja M. Ankh replied, he said, I recommend that your majesty proceed to the lake of the palace, and equip a boat for yourself with all the beautiful women from the interior of your palace. Your majesty's heart will calm when you see those women rowing up and down the Nile, when you see the beautiful pools of your lake, when you see the marshes and the beautiful banks. Your heart will calm because of that. Sneferu replied, Yes, I will make a rowing trip. Bring to me twenty oars of ebony wood, worked with gold. Their handles should be sandal wood, worked with electrum. Bring to me twenty women, with beautiful bodies, with firm breasts, with braided hair, women who have not been opened by giving birth. And bring to me twenty nets, and give those nets to the beautiful women after taking off their clothes. This was done exactly as His Majesty commanded. End quote. The story begins in the middle of things. Sneferu is bored, maybe a little depressed, and to cure his blues, the educated priest, Jaja M. Ankh, makes a recommendation. Sneferu should take a cruise on his lake or harbour, and he should enjoy the scenery. Heck, why not take some girls along for the ride? Surely, that will cheer the king up. Sneferu listens, and he thinks that's a good idea. Naturally, Sneferu adds his own twist to the priest's recommendation. Yes, he will take a cruise with beautiful women. But to make sure the scenery is even better, he commands that the women be young, with desirable bodies. And most importantly almost naked. The king gives very specific instructions that the women should take off their clothes and wear nets. That way, they are clothed, sort of, but everything is visible. Superficially, the tale gives a sense of Sneferu's personality, or at least his reputation. We get the idea that people remembered him as somebody who loved pleasures, In this case, the pleasure is obviously the pleasure of beautiful things that he can look at. The priest, Jaja M. Ankh, emphasises that Sneferu will be happy when he can see the beautiful women rowing on the river, and also the natural beauty of the water and the marshes themselves. Then Sneferu shows his own inclinations when he gets very specific about the girls. So the story, which is a fantasy or fairy tale, might preserve some kind of memory of Sneferu's personality. At the very least, he may have had a reputation for those kind of interests. So Sneferu thinks the cruise is a good idea, and he goes out on his boat. This is when things get interesting. Then the girls rowed up and down the river, and his majesty's heart was happy to see them rowing. But then the girl who was at the steering oar ran a hand through her hair, and her new pendant, shaped like a fish and made of turquoise, fell out of her hair into the water. As a result, the girl became silent and she stopped rowing, and her rank of rowers were also silent and stopped rowing. His Majesty asked the girls, You don't row anymore? And they replied, Our lead rower has stopped rowing. His Majesty said to the lead girl, "Well, why aren't you rowing?" And she replied, "Because my new fish pendant, made of turquoise, fell into the water." The king said, "If you want a pendant, we will replace it." But she said, "I want my pendant, not one like it." End quote. Ironically, Sneferu's own demands wound up interrupting his cruise. He specifically asked for girls with braided hair, a sign of youth. But one of the girls was wearing a pendant, and when she touched her braid, the pendant fell into the river. The king's fussy demands created a situation that ultimately interrupted his cruise. So, what could they do? The tale continues, His majesty commanded, Bring me the chief lector-priest. Jaja Im Ang, and the priest was brought immediately. The king said, Jaja Im Ang, my brother, I have done as you said. I went on a cruise, and I was happy. But a pendant shaped like a fish fell into the water. Jaja Im did not hesitate. He spoke his magic words, and he folded the water back on top of itself, or he parted the waters of the lake. Jaja M'Unk found the fish pendant lying at the bottom on a piece of pottery. He fetched the pendant, and it was given back to its owner, the rowing girl. Now, as for the water, it was twelve cubits deep originally, about three metres. But once Jaja M'Unk folded the river in half, the water was twenty-four cubits deep, about six metres. But the priest said his magic words again and he restored the waters to their original position. His majesty, Sneferu, spent a happy day with all the royal household, and he rewarded the priest, Jaja M'Ankh, with every good thing. End quote. Once again, the educated priest came to the rescue. Jaja M'Ankh, a man with secret exclusive knowledge, used his magic to save the pendant. He folded the river in half, so that the waters lay atop one another, and the riverbed was dry. The priest walked out, presumably while the king watched from his boat, and he picked up the pendant. Just like that, problem solved. This tale may sound familiar in some respects. A magician parting the waters so that he can walk across the bottom? It is not hard to see a parallel with the tale of Moses parting the sea, so that his people can cross to safety. Granted, Jaja M. Ankh's magic had a slightly frivolous purpose. Retrieving a pendant is not quite as important as saving thousands of lives. But you get the point. The magic of parting the waters has a long and deep history. Pardon the pun. So the tale came to a happy ending, literally. We hear that Sneferu spent a good day, a Heru Nefer together with his household. It's hard to interpret what this means exactly. Do they mean he spent time with his family, courtiers, and so forth? Or is the story ending with a slightly tongue-in-cheek tone? The household that Sneferu spends a good time with could be those 20 girls he brought on the boat. I'm not sure about this one. The ending could be genuine, or it could be a euphemism for Sneferu's indulgence. I'll leave it to you to decide the interpretation. The tale of Sneferu and his pleasure cruise ties in nicely with recent discoveries at Dashur. The king had a reputation for loving beautiful things. Granted, that was in his name. But we also have evidence that the king followed through on this in life. At his command... Royal agents tried to build a garden in the sands of Dashur. And workers laboured endlessly to build a harbour for the pyramids and their temples. And when that harbour was complete, Sneferu might have enjoyed trips on the water, surrounded by his beautiful things. So from various sources, we get an idea of Sneferu as a ruler and a character. Centuries later, Egyptians remembered him, as a lover of beauty, whatever form that took. Recent discoveries at Dashur are rapidly expanding our knowledge of the monuments and the ancient landscape. We can see how, under Sneferu, Egyptian architects modified earlier practices. They changed the design of royal pyramids, and they changed the elements of pyramid complexes. Egypt's first pyramid, the Step Pyramid at Saqqara, sat at the heart of a vast stone city. Elaborate buildings, imitating real structures, surrounded that monument. But a few generations later, Sneferu's architects were revising all of these concepts. The pyramids of Dashur did not have fancy imitation cities. Instead, these pyramid complexes spread out over the area. Instead of one massive structure with different elements there were now separate, discrete areas. The pyramid dominated the horizon, but nearer the valley, stone temples rose to honour the king. In front of those temples, a massive harbour developed to service the region, and at one point, a full-on garden orchard appeared in the area. That garden failed, but the fact they tried is interesting in itself. And thanks to the work of archaeologists, we learn more about these attempted wonders. An artificial oasis, a massive harbour, new styles of temple. All of these added to the legacy of Sneferu, the one who made beautiful things.